0: Have you ever felt frustrated like you were in a maze and you could not find your way out you had no idea where to go nothing was going right and everything was going wrong and Lord where are you Uh, that could have been the Apostle Paul's feeling in the section that we are going to look at today in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 24. I have never been lost in a maze. I was once lost in an attic. Uh, somebody shut me in a dark attic when I was a little kid as a practical joke, and I don't have any sense of direction. Like, I don't have a clue what north is. And I uh, was stuck in that attic, and for months afterward, I was afraid to go to sleep at night because I had nightmares. Uh, we can get in spots like that. As adults, we can, or as young people, we can get in, in, in places like that where we don't know what is going on, and we don't know where to turn. Well. One of the things that struck me as I prepared for this was this. The Apostle Paul spent, I don't know how many years he spent altogether in ministry. If I had been a little more careful, I could have looked at Paul's notes this morning and, and uh, figured that out. But he spent perhaps, uh, what, 20 years or something? But 10 years before his missionary journeys and another 10 years during his missionary journeys. And then he spent the last four or five years of his life imprisoned. I know we had a little break afterwards, but that's something to think about. <clears throat> and, 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 and during this, at, at one point in this, uh, the beginning of this late imprisonment, here's what we have. We have Paul speaking to the crowds at the temple in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22. And then in Acts chapter 23, we have Uh, him speaking before the actual council in Jerusalem, the, the big dogs who ran the place. And then, moving from Jerusalem and the Jewish context to the Roman context, he is sent to Caesarea to Felix. That's where we're going to be today, the beginning of his trials before Roman authorities. And then he goes to Festus, and then he goes to Agrippa, And he virtually spends the latter part of his life imprisoned. Think back on the last four or five years of your life. What if you had been in prison? What are the things that happened in the last four or five years that simply would not have happened? Because you're in prison and you can't do that that's what Paul that's where Paul was he was in prison he was uh, after these Jewish hearings he was sent up to Caesarea under an armed escort now I what were the numbers like 470 soldiers who escorted him up there pretty high security deal right They were obviously afraid of this guy and his influence. Uh, Caesarea was the headquarters of the Roman occupying force at the time. It's uh, about 75 miles up the coastal highway from Jerusalem, and that's where the Romans administered justice. Uh, Judea had become a Roman province in AD 6, and since then, the headquarters of the uh, of the Roman garrison had been up in Caesarea. <clears throat> so our topic is Paul before Felix, from Acts chapter twenty four. Felix was apparently a freedman who had been a slave of the emperor's mother, and he was corrupt but he had protection from an older brother who was influential in Rome. The historian Tacitus says of him, unrest increased under his rule, for with savagery and lust he exercised the powers of a king with the disposition of a slave. This was a mean guy. At one point, he actually hired assassins to assassinate the high priest in Jerusalem. This, that's how corrupt he was. Now, uh, here's what I'd like to do. I want to I read through the passage with a few comments as we go and then try and give you the message the Lord has laid on my heart based on that. We begin, though, with just a note from chapter 23 of Acts. Chapter 23, verse 29. Lysias, the commander of the garrison in Jerusalem, had sent Paul to Caesarea under guard with a letter. I found the accusations had to do with questions about their law, the Jews' law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. That was Felix's introduction to Paul. I'm sending him up there. I don't think there are any, uh, there are no charges worthy of death or imprisonment. That's what you're about. So it's your problem now. You can't can't say much more than that. All right. Chapter 24, then verse 1. Five days later, after he sent uh, this letter, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor so that's this is the situation they 're in court. Tertullus the lawyer is presenting he 's going to present the charges, and Paul is there. when Paul was called in. Tertullus presented the case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. What would you call that? Flattery, exactly. Flattery. He's, I mean, it just. Pfft. All right? Now the charges. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. <laughs> he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. What charges? What charges? (laughs) Like He's stirring up riots all over the world? Come on. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And where are the charges? There's nothing there. But the other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So they're, they're, they're presenting empty charges, testified to by people who are obviously uh, in opposition to Paul's work. Now here's Paul's response. When the governor motioned him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. See the difference? Tertullus gets up there and he all this flattery and nonsense, and Paul gets up there and and simply expresses respect for the judge. Verse 11. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges that they now make against me. Right? Simple statement. Verse 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that was written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Uh, Excuse me, of both the righteous and the wicked. And I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Right? Simple statement of the facts. Verse 17. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any any disturbance. Paul's presenting his case simply. Verse 19. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Otherwise, uh, pardon me, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So he says, look, there there are witnesses who ought to be here. If they have witnesses against me, let them bring the witnesses. These guys standing in the back aren't offering any testimony. they, They have no testimony to offer. And then, and then he says, unless it was this one thing, when I was before the Sanhedrin, I talked about the resurrection of the dead. All right? Is that what I'm on trial for you today? For believing in the resurrection? Now, he knew that in the Sanhedrin, there was a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees. And I suspect that's part of why he mentioned the resurrection there. I think he's mentioning the resurrection here, because he's saying, is this the kind of charge that you're going to condemn me for? But he had another, I think he had another motive behind that. He's introducing the gospel. <laughs> he's, he's kind of leading up to the gospel. He, that's why he's talking about the resurrection, I think. He's trying to give Felix a clue that the charges are baseless and that what he's on trial for is some violation of Jewish law that has nothing to do with the Roman courts. But at the same time, he's introducing the gospel. All right, then we come to Felix's conclusion. <clears throat> at this stage, anyway, verse 22. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. The people of the way, they were a troublesome group. Uh, they They didn't cause any riots. They didn't, well, they may have caused riots because other people were opposed to them, but they were not violent in any way. and apparently Felix had an interest he he knew about the way he knew about these christians he knew what something about them and he went home he went back to his rooms and discussed this with his wife and then verse 24 several days later Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Ah, Now we've got to the heart of the gospel. As Paul talked about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe after talking about righteousness and faithfulness and judgment to come. Yeah. Uh, so, he, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. So this is real life for Paul. He's, he's up against the authorities. He's talking to Felix, he's witnessing to Felix, he's having conversations, he's obviously presenting the gospel to him, and it's simply, Felix can't, can't really respond positively. So he puts him in prison. Verse 27 When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Port- Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Two years have passed. This Portius Festus guy comes on the scene and Paul is left in prison. He'd been in prison for two years. He leaves him in prison. All right. Now let me underline some words here. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. What do you call that? Politics. Paul is confined by the politics of his day. Wouldn't you be frustrated? I would. Yeah, he, when, while he was in prison, he, he wrote letters to the churches, and he witnessed to the people around him and all that. But couldn't he have done so much more if he had been free to travel? Couldn't he have taken the gospel farther? His, his, his whole goal in life was to take the gospel where it had not been preached. Couldn't he have done so much more if these four or five years that he languished in, excuse me, he didn't languish, these four or five years that he was in prison, if he had been free to travel and and spread the gospel? Now here's the title of my message. God is never frustrated. I may be frustrated. I may be just trembling under the circumstances, but God is never frustrated. Do you think God was surprised by this? (laughs) He never says, well, under the circumstances, I think what we should do. No, God is not under the circumstances. And he never says what, you know, I hope the surgeon never says, oops. (laughs) Do you think that God could get lost in a maze? God couldn't get lost in a maze. So I want to go to some other scriptures and gather some thoughts that will help us understand where God is in all of this situation with the Apostle Paul. We spend our lives acquiring knowledge so we get wiser as we get older. Well some of us too soon old too late wise. Sometimes I think that (laughs) Lord, if I had known this 40 years ago, <clears throat> we uh, God is completely wise. He knows everything now, intuitively. And he did yesterday, and he will tomorrow. He knows everything. God is completely wise. <clears throat> Here is... First John chapter three, verse 20, which we've already seen in the in the uh, songs. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he, blunt statement, knows everything. God knows everything. Or look at Paul's own words in Romans chapter 11. At the end of Romans chapter 11, he says he's gone through the, the he's gone through the whole mystery of the gospel. The gospel of grace that that saves us by grace alone and not by works. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. That's how Paul concludes. He has just laid out the whole scope of the gospel through the ages. And that's what he says. The depth. Of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and then on the other hand we have this for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face-to-face face. now I know in part but then I will know fully even as I have been fully known see the difference ah, I'm look I'm looking in a mirror dimly I can't quite see everything. I'm seeing, I'm getting glimpses, I'm beginning to kind of try and understand. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything. Or take it from the psalmist. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You know it completely. God watches over each of us. Each of us. Not the world, each of us individually. <clears throat> you know, as I thought about this, I thought, all right, well, to what degree of detail cells in the human body? 30, about 30 trillion cells in the human body. That's quite an accomplishment, right? To put 30 trillion cells together and make up a human body. God can handle that. Or think about how many stars are there in the sky. 200 sextillion, 21 zeros. And the universe has been expanding at 45 miles a second since creation. Expanding at 45 miles a second. And, you know, the current fad among scientists, among uh, astrophysicists, and so on, and astronomers, is to find other life in the universe. Will they find some? I don't know. Psalm 147, the psalmist says, he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. That many? He determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. And Isaiah in chapter 40 says, Lift up your eyes and look on the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you know what that is? Infinite knowledge infinite knowledge. Infinite knowledge of everything. Now let's turn to this one star and this one planet going around this star and on this planet one person, you. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That he's he's administering these, what did I say? Sextillions of stars. And he's responsible for each one of us. He's caring for each one of us. God is all-loving and will do what's best for us. He is not only all-knowing, he is all-loving, and will do what's best for us. Could I give you an illustration? Young guy, Joseph, thrown in a pit by his brothers. Gets worse. Sold into slavery. Gets worse. Thrown in prison. Then things turn and he's out of prison. He has his family come to Egypt and his brothers who had thrown him in the pit are shocked. And this text says they threw themselves down before him. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God was not frustrated by Joseph's circumstances. And and praise God, as far as we know, Joseph was not frustrated by his circumstances. But God had a purpose in this, and he was going to save his people uh, through the instrumentality of Joseph. And you th- go, go through the names. Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Jonah, Daniel. Da- and, and think of their stories and just go back and read Hebrews chapter 11. God, what did he call for? Faith. Trust him because he is all-knowing and he is all-loving. God's plan is more important than my life. God is all-loving, and he's going to work the very best for me, but sometimes that's going to involve painful circumstances. Hmm? All-loving is not coddling. All-loving is allowing the the, the, the difficult circumstances to test my faith and develop my faith and keep me going on the way of faith. And here's how the psalmist states that. But I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. My times are in his hands. Can we trust him for that? We can commit our lives to God and trust him even in the darkest valleys. I want to give you, I think i will take time to do this. Here's a condensed version from the end of Romans chapter 8. All right. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is all loving. Paul's, the Apostle Paul's suffering was not an interruption in his ministry. It was Part of his ministry. Here's what God gave Ananias when Saul came face to face with Christ. This man is a chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul's suffering was not an interruption in his ministry. It was part of his ministry. It was part of what God called him to. Christianity is not idealistic, it's realistic. Love does not exclude suffering, in fact, it may add suffering. All right, I'm going to wrap up. <clears throat> You may be in a place where you could be frustrated. You may think that you're in a maze and you can't find the direction. You may be thinking, I wish, and to use another metaphor, I wish this, I, I thought this many times when I was a student. <clears throat> I wish this train would stop and let me off and catch my breath. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel the world is crowding in on you and crushing you. You feel everything's out of control. Sometimes I worry about doubt. <clears throat> not that I not on God's side, but on my side. I, he he is able, but can I trust him? Am I real my I, I mean one of the f- scriptures that comes often to mind is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to trust you in these circumstances. Can you allow the Lord to rule in your circumstances, even when they are difficult? Let me, I want to leave you with uh, my last word, and it's this. When I, I became a Christian when I was in my teens and the preacher gave me a Bible and in the Bible he wrote a couple of references and one of the references was this Proverbs 3 5 and 6 trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways submit to him and he will prepare your way. Trust in the Lord. he, 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 He may not show you the way ahead of time, but he'll prepare the way for you. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord.